Chelsea, have you seen that meme that's like, Tuesday again, no problem. What? Have you not seen that? There's a Twitter account, and the only thing they post is this picture of a dog every Tuesday that says, Tuesday again, no problem. And I feel the opposite today. I was going to say, I don't agree. I keep thinking about this TikTok I saw that this guy went through some work to do. It was like POV, it's New Year's Eve 2020. And it's like everybody in a party, like just getting ready to like, like not even like say hello to 2021, but just say goodbye to 2020. And they're like, yeah, like fuck this year, let's get rid of it. And then they're all watching the clock and it goes from 1159 to 1160. And I was like, I would lose like the weight that I felt in that moment. I was like, thank you like TikToker for introducing me to an anxiety that I didn't even realize I knew I had, which was that 2020 won't end. That'll just keep going. It's just a nightmare. A nightmare. Another Tuesday. You're welcome. No problem. (laughs) Hello and welcome to what? We're having another episode and it's just me and Chelsea living our medium lives. It's, you know, it's sure life. In quarantine. Uh, oh man so this weekend i was having some fun with my friends and i got really excited and started running and i just i fell fell so hard in front of another group of people that i felt the need to apologize to them for what is actually i think upon reflection a gift like i would have loved to have seen someone fall as hard as i fell it looked like I had two knees it really was bad and it's not great now i'll tell you that for free it's my leg is just all kinds of like purples and indigos and I'm I'm sure it's going to get to like a yellow place. It looked know. like like in like some bizarre saw like jigsaw trap like somebody had implanted a softball under your skin. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I have five fun fast facts. Oh my god, I'm so excited. Number 1. Newborn kangaroos are about the size of a jelly bean. That's too small. That's very small. Is that why they're in that pouch? I guess so. There's only one of them, so that's a roomy pouch. That's true. Number two, you may have heard there is cyanide in apple seeds, but it's also in avocado pits. That makes sense. Like a big, big apple seed. In some ways. <laughs> Number three, the president's limo comes with a full fridge of his blood type. I have heard that before. I wasn't sure if I thought it was true, but it seemed like very possible. A full you, like, fridge. Dude, you gotta put that blood back in the president. That's what killed <laughs> JFK. Put the blood back in. Number four, the average number of stars we can see with the naked eye is around 10,000, which is only 0.00004% of all the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. That one took me a second because the not, 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 like I thought you might have been having a bit of a stroke. And then zero. It was my fault. I was just having like a moment of just like, she was like, and it's not, 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 not. And I was like, what? Number five, my favorite, especially picked for you. Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart was actually originally written for a Broadway musical about vampires in love, which was never made, unfortunately. It makes so much more sense because it has like that weird call and response that like yeah. doesn't go anywhere like <laughs> thematically in the song. Doesn't make any, I mean, it's amazing, but it doesn't make any sense as the song continues. Something about that song that got like scrambled in my brain. Do you remember slash did it make it to England from the mid 90s pop up video? Did you ever see pop up video? Pop up video? No. Yeah. So pop up video was a show that fucking whipped that was like they'd show music videos and then 
throughout the music video, it was on either like MTV or VH1, I can't remember. But uh-huh. throughout the music video, these little pop-ups would come up. It was basically like the proto, like second screen experience. So a pop-up would come up okay. that would be like, fun fact, this extra in this music video was also in blah, blah, blah. It would just be like little like fun facts okay. about the video. And I don't know, cause this isn't true. And also the math doesn't check out. Somehow I became convinced from watching a pop-up video on Total Clips of the Heart that that song was about Mary Kay Letourneau and Billy Falau. Do those names mean anything to you? <laughs> Not at all. It just sounded like, just sounded like you said sounds. <laughs> okay, so uh, it's the love story of our generation. Are you looking it up? <laughs> Maybe. It's the love story of our generation. It was the first high profile case where like a 27 year old woman who was married and was a junior high school teacher fell in love with her 13 year old student and became impregnated by him. It's not allowed. It's not allowed and she went to prison. (laughs) But here's the craziest part. She got in trouble and then they were like, but they were like, oh, like you're so sweet and white and young and pretty. I'm sure you didn't mean to do this. Like, here's your slap on the wrist. Just you don't have to go to prison. The only thing you have to do is just never see this 13 year old again. Cause it was like inappropriate and you were a child predator. And she yeah. was like, okay, but they just couldn't stay away from each other. And she got caught having sex with him in the back of a car, like two months later after like the case was over. No. So then they were like, Mary Kay, what did we just say? Like, what did we just say about this? So then she had to go to prison. But then when she got out of prison, he was 18. And they got married and they were together ever since. Like, I think she died like last year, but they oh. were together for like 20 years. So like, Whoa. it was one of those things where it was just like, well, I mean, it still makes me feel really icky. I don't like it. And I don't think that you should have sex with your students. And I definitely don't think that you should have sex with 13 year olds. No. And definitely if the court says, don't see this kid anymore, you shouldn't like violate that. But they were always like, well, it's different because we're in love. And they did kind of like stay together forever and have multiple children. So I had to look this up. <laughs> he's now a DJ? Oh yeah, they used to do DJ nights. They hosted a series of hot for teacher nights at a local club in 2009. I know. That happened in the 90s. Like I remember that very vaguely happening. I want to wash my brain of that. <laughs> but wait, that's not what Totally Close to the Heart is about, but for some reason. It's about, well, kind of, it's about vampires in love. That's true. I do think in the music video, she's like a teacher at a school. Because aren't there like, there's like little teen, like teen boys. And they get like glowing eyes. Yes. But are they the vampires? New pitch. And this is related to my what topic, so you can't get mad. You'll see how. New drama, human school teachers, school full of vampire boys. Ooh. So then it's not, well, but there's still like a weird consent thing there because you are their teacher. I was going to say, because they'll all be like 800 years old. So like, there's not really like a consent issue there. <laughs> it's just, a, there is still a power dynamic. But there's still a power dynamic. You know what? I'm going to keep workshopping it. Does I it apply to 800 year old vampire boys? <laughs> I mean, who's to say? It's unprecedented now that stuff. Now it out loud. It starts to feel more like a switch, like the switcheroo show where it's like, you've just created a really complicated construct so that you could have a story about like a, tea, a Mary Kate Latourno. So you know what? I scrap it. I scrap it. I, I anti-TM. Feel free to take this idea away. I want to put it back on the table and I, oh wanna, I want to suggest Lisa Gale for <gasps> the leading role. You know what? I take it back. Maybe it's like a freedom writers kind of thing that she's helping these 800 year old vampires finally graduate. 
What if it's like, okay, yeah, okay, wait, wait. So it's back on the table. The romance is out the window because it was icky. Instead, they're all vampires, but because they're so old, they come from a time that was pre-literate. They didn't learn how to read. And now they're too embarrassed to say, What's up? My name's Vladimir. I'm 800 years old and I never know how to read. <laughs> oh, fucking read. And then Lisa Gilman will teach them. Well, this has been great. I have a follow-up fast fact. Okay. that I want to talk to you about because we haven't gotten to talk about it yet. And the one rule for this fast fact, you're not allowed to ask me how I found this out. Okay. Did you know there's such a thing as an orgasm headache? Because <laughs> I didn't until last and week. And I still don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Okay, so if a person were to... For example, hypothetically, hypothetically, and then just be immediately like at the point of orgasm overcome with terrible, like debilitating pounding pain in their head. Yeah. And they might go on to the internet as you do and be like, why? And then they might find a bunch of information that's like, oh, this is actually, this is actually regular. And a lot of people have this. And it said the headache could go away in a couple hours or it could take months and i was like well not me because it wasn't me but like a person could be like holy shit great that's not good i don't like that then it says yeah this is really common and typically people who have it will have it again and then they said but if it's your first time ever having this kind of headache immediately after an orgasm uh, you could be having an aneurysm and bleeding out into your head because when you have an orgasm, like you like vasoconstrict, you bear down, right? And like all your blood vessels go, <laughs> not you, and not me, but like a hypothetical person. One would but, bear down. So you really bear down when you have an orgasm. And so lots of people have aneurysms. Aneurysms are actually really common because they're just oh, like yeah. a big bulging blood vessel. And most people, the, the aneurysm never bursts and like they only get found like incidentally when you die of a different reason. But they were like, okay, but since so many people have aneurysms and then an orgasm is where you bear down really hard, you can, you're at a higher risk of like rupturing your aneurysm, which is why if it's the first time you, not you and not me, but if a theoretical person has this horrible blinding headache, then you want to go to the emergency room (laughs) to make sure that you don't have a ruptured aneurysm, which is the story of how I texted my stepmom at 2 a.m. because I knew she was up because she works as an emergency room nurse and was like, hey, uh, is there a chance I have an aneurysm? And she was like, you're so stupid. (laughs) (laughs) She didn't say that. She was really sweet. Did you just decide to stop brushing your hair while we were on the podcast? <laughs> is, is that wrong? I just heard the like of a hairbrush. <laughs> I know my hair's really loud, and you know it's something I'm sensitive about. Let's get into it. My title, I'm really proud of my title actually. And you might get it immediately, and even so, I don't mind. My title is From Hell to Hogwarts. Okay, I have several thoughts. Okay. Is it about Jack the Ripper? No. And Harry Potter? Okay, no. Explain immediately. (laughs) Um, Well, From Hell was the name of that movie, and I think also a book about Jack the Ripper. Oh. And I think it was a reference to a quote about Jack the Ripper. That that he was like, you know, from hell. Okay, well, then my next idea is that it's about... Because, like, all of the Harry Potter characters, they had names that were, like, that had come from mythology, right? Some of them, yes. Yeah. So, but none of them were Hades. 
There was that dog. Is it about that dog? Is it about that three-headed dog? It is about that three-headed dog. Yes! I got there. <laughs> there was that There was that dog. No, but there was that dog. It's about Cerberus, the three-headed dog. Yeah. I think you're going to really enjoy this because it's like very metal, deeply dark, but also very sweet. And there's a surprise turn. So I'm excited for both of them. Oh my God. I too have a surprise turn. Oh! So my Is title... this going to be our Shyamalan episode? <laughs> I hope so. It's not really, it's not like it's in like a, well... It takes a hard right <laughs> in, in, a, in a way that I'm hoping that you won't expect, which is really fun. Okay. I'm very excited. This is a return to form for Chelsea Ooh. in terms of let's connect a lot of like fun ideas. Okay. Um, <laughs> and my title is The War of the Words. The War of the Words. Immediately Shakespeare comes to mind, made up a lot of words, as did Dr. It's, Seuss. Man, you really did something there. I <laughs> <laughs> I spent some time there. She's like, she's like, you know who else made up words? Dr. Seuss. Think about it. Is it about Samuel Johnson who wrote the dictionary? Is that true? I don't know, actually. I think so. I know that from an episode. Are you saying things? I, I know that from an episode of Blackadder. No, it is not. War of the words. Life is kind of the war of the words. That's actually the closest that you've been this whole time. <laughs> Okay, from Hell to Hogwarts, the story of Cerberus. Oh my god. The original Hellhound and the first anti-theft security system. <laughs> yes. If you think about it, he's the urtext of canine law. And we're talking about Cerberus, the three-headed dog of Greek mythology. You might know him better as Fluffy. And we will come real circle. We'll get there. Cerberus means death demon of the dark in ancient right. Greek. Very good. Really on the nose. They were like, they're like, should we be subtle about this? And they're like, no. Cerberus is a dog with a job. His task, <laughs> I know, just a little deep baby with the first job dog. His task is to guard the gates of the underworld. Question though, and maybe it's going to come up. Is he guarding, which side is he guarding on? Like, is he keeping people in or is he keeping people out? Both. Oh, shit. Yeah. Go on. He is. He sits in front of that door, and no one can come in. No one can come out unless you know you 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 die and you belong there. So one wonderful facet of ancient mythological traditions is their inconsistencies. The stories yeah. vary a lot. They like to mix it up depending on the ancient source material you prefer. Whatever, be it Hesiod's Theogony, Alloporidus's The Library, or any of the later classical and early modern works that draw upon them. This titanic canine had as few as three but as many as 50 and even up to 100 heads. Okay. Now, who was the jackass that was saying, like, this dog has 100 heads? Because, like, that feels like you were just trying to one-up somebody in your written text. Well, the descriptions of him vary massively. So Apollodorus gives us the typical physical description of Cerberus. Three heads of a dog, the tail of a dragon, and on his back, the heads of all sorts of snakes. <laughs> That's good. That's good to me. <laughs> all sorts. One thing that is in all of them is that he had more than one head. Multiple heads are the standard of the Cerberus myth. Well, yeah, he's got to watch both ways, at least. <laughs> Sometimes he had lion's feet. In the Theogony, Hesiod claims that Cerberus ate raw flesh. In Ovid's Metamorphosis, the dog's drool was full of foul, poisonous liquids. And kind of like the Gorgon Medusa, he could turn a living person to stone by looking at them. Okay, well, now you're just copying. 
So you can't just you can't just copy. So there are loads of different descriptions of what Cerberus was like, but they all agree that he had multiple heads. And the most constant one is a three-headed a giant three-headed dog. Good. The family of Cerberus predates the major pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses, so like Zeus, Hera, mm-hmm. all those. Cerberus's family way older than that. Most legends agree that the guard dog of Hades was one of the monstrous offspring of Typhon and Echidna. Echidna like Knuckles? It is spelt that way. <laughs> so it is so I, it's reasonable to conclude therefore <laughs> unto that it, that it was Knuckles. That it was Knuckles. Right? Uh, a similar everlasting being. <laughs> So Typhon was the son of Gaia, which literally means the earth. Yeah. He had multiple heads. So that's where he got that from. And then he had heads coming out of his hands. Wait, Gaia or Typhon? Typhon. Okay. Knuckles' husband. Typhon. (laughs) So he had like somewhere between 50 and 100 heads from his, you know, regular place from his neck. And then more heads coming out of his hands, as you do. Good. And then Echidna, Knuckles, Cerberus's mother, had the torso and head of a beautiful woman, but a trunk consisting of a tremendous serpent. So apparently if you smash that together, you get Cerberus, you get the Hydra, you probably had the terrible serpent who had a butt ton of heads, and if you cut one of its heads off, two grew back. They get you. They also had the Sphinx, who you might done seen in Egypt. I love the Sphinx. The body of a lion, the head of a woman, and the Nemean lion, who was a beast with an impenetrable hide. So they're all they're all the kids of Echidna and Typhon. Oh, and the Chimera. Nice. The head of a lion, a goat's head braying from its midsection, and a tail that was a living snake. I mean, I no. guess just in the ancient world, you just see a bunch of cool animals and you're like, what if? You just like smash those things together. These are all smashed together. Did you know that chimerism is a, a also a medical condition? No. Can you guess you, what it means? You have a goat coming out of your middle bits. Yes. God, I didn't think you were gonna get that so fast. It's when so you know how you can like absorb your twin in the womb. Yeah. So it's when you do that, and then you have different types of DNA in different parts of your body. So like if they take your blood, it'll be like one DNA profile. And if they take your like spit, it'll be a different one. Is that like- Literally, like chimerism means you have like, like you said, like you have multiple parts of different things in your body. That's wild. Isn't that weird? Yes. Cerberus kept perpetual watch at the gates of Hades preventing the living from entering and the dead from leaving. One assumes that Hades or one of his factotums had locally sourced raw flesh delivered to Cerberus to eat. (laughs) Or he had some sort of like high quality dog food shipped in, who's to say? But let's go through, just quickly run through all the tales where Cerberus pops up. So there's the Orpheus legend. Orpheus, a mortal, the most gifted musician and poet of the of ancient legend, used his skills to charm his way past Cerberus to enter the land of the dead, which is because upon the accidental death of his wife, Orpheus was counseled to enter Hades and attempt to rescue her. So you could, like, in these ancient legends, pull people back from the afterlife. Mm-hmm. And his music upon the lyre was said to be so sweet and moving that it could wring tears from rocks. It could make the rocks cry. So he slipped past Cerberus in that legend. The best-known story of Cerberus is in his humiliation at the hands of Hercules in one of Hercules' 12th labors. 12 labors. 
So Hera, the wife of Zeus, drove Hercules insane, and during this fit, Hercules slew his own wife and children. Oopsie daisy. You hate to see it. You hate to see it. This event and the penance for it instigated Hercules' most legendary journeys, the Twelve Labors. In the course of these adventures, Hercules had to defeat no less than three of Cerberus's siblings. He had to slay and skin the Nemean lion, mm. whose hide was impervious to every blade. He slew the multi-headed Hydra, followed by Orthrus, which was a two-headed dog. Just two heads. Just two little Aww. tiny heads. That's gotta suck. But in most iterations of the labors of Hercules, his final task was to subdue and retrieve Cerberus. Okay, so you didn't have to kill him. The only catch was that the dog had to be brought to King Eurystheus alive and unharmed, and Hercules could use no weapons. So he wore only a breastplate and the Nemean lion's skin for armor, made his way to Hades, where he wrestled the three-headed dog into submission and accomplished his mission. And that's seen just in so many ancient Greek depictions and arts and on temples and... The Twelve Labors of Hercules is very fun and nothing like the Disney story. Yeah, well, I mean, it's hard to uh, hard to Disneyify that. <laughs> to reflect that first bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In order to bring back your family that you've murdered. <laughs> <laughs> then there was the encounter with Aeneas in the Aeneid, which I had to study for A-level, which is actually technically Roman mythology. So, But they co-opted most of the primary figures of their Greek neighbors. They yeah. just called them all different things. So Zeus was Jupiter, Hera was... I don't know. They're all the moons and planets and shit. In Virgil's Aeneid, the hero Aeneas, like Orpheus and Hercules, had to descend into the underworld. Like his predecessors, Aeneas needed counsel and assistance to get past Cerberus, where Orpheus charmed the three-headed monster with music and Hercules subdued the beast through brute strength. Aeneas basically uh, drugged him. <laughs> he had a soporific dog treat for the occasion <laughs> that he got from uh, Sybil, who was a prophetess. Yeah. Sybil! I'm livid. Sybil went with Aeneas to the underworld. They approached Cerberus, and at the right moment, hearing the snarls of the vigilant multi-headed dog, Sybil tossed the dog the medicated biscuit. This is John Dryden's translation of that moment from the Aeneid. The prudent Sybil had before prepared a sop in honey steeped to charm the guard, which mixed with powerful drugs she cast before his greedy, grinning jaws. And Cerberus ate the little cake and fell asleep and allowed them to pass unaccompanied. So the thing that I found really interesting about looking up all these ancient myths is this completely different kind of hell that they have. Uh-huh. Because it's not really based on a morality system like lots of religious depictions of heaven and hell. So even though he was technically a hellhound, Cerberus wasn't evil. He just had a job. Just a dog with a job. He's just a dog with a job. As you see, most of his stories are just about people having to elude him or to trying to defeat his efforts to keep people out and in. Unlike the devil dogs you see in schlocky horror films, never in any of the stories of ancient Greece is he a monstrous character. He's never evil or dastardly. And that actually is the same thing for Hades. Hades was not a bad dude. Right in the Greek god Pantheon. He was just like, oh, my brother sits on Mount Olympus and is the hero of all people, and my job is to, to guard the, the the dead folks. Yeah, I thought my understanding of the sort of death myth or, or like afterlife in Greek and Roman mythology was that everybody went to Hades mm-hmm. unless you did something like extraordinary in which like in which case you would ascend to Olympus. But like that was like one in a million type stuff. Right, unless you became a hero or you were a demigod. Right. So Hades was much more altruistically inclined in mythology. He only really got mad when people tried to leave or like go against what his job was. He was much more passive and much more about maintaining balance than anything else. 
Mm-hmm. So I looked up different cultures and thoughts about the ancient afterlife. And in a, most of them, the underworld could be a lovely place. We think about like the River of Sticks and the Gates of Hell and Hades. And you think like either hellfire and that's more kind of unfortunately modern depiction of hell or gray and nasty writhing bodies and desolate blue gray underworld mm-hmm. in ancient egypt the underworld was like a resplendent fields of reeds and a big river just like the nile and as long as you were properly prepared we all know about the mummification and what had to go and put your stuff in your jars and have you all your gotta nice, have your jars gotta have them jars and you gotta have all of your fancy ish around you also didn't know this though with mummies they kept their mouth open because if they didn't keep their mouth open they wouldn't be able to eat properly in the underworld oh so that's probably why you see them all like Argh. because they haven't been like wired shut they just they had to keep it open so they mostly believed that life in the underworld wouldn't be that bad unless you were unprepared and if you were unprepared it was a dark and dreary place full of obstacles you know what I think just thinking purely about human psychology as it relates to ideas of death I totally understand the psychological impetus for that, right? Because the Christian idea, and I mean, you you know, I don't subscribe to the idea that people go to hell, but no. this sort of like generic Christian idea of hell is meant to, I think, give some people idea of justice. If they don't feel like justice has been served on earth, then mm-hmm. you can take comfort in the idea that somebody will get like their due in the afterlife because if they did something bad then they'll go to hell right Whereas this greek idea it actually gives the power back to the living because it's like oh well here's hell or here's like afterlife but if you're bad then we're going to do things here on earth that make it an unpleasant experience for you right after you're dead so then you then regain the power to kind of like distribute justice exactly interesting very different system Oh, yeah. This is something I didn't know, and I thought this was so dope. So Mount Olympus was where all the Greek gods, all the goodies, for the most part, even though they all did terrible things, actually. Yeah, they were awful. They they sucked. But that's, like, was supposedly, like, the good place, and they hung out on Mount Olympus, which is a real mountain on the Greek mainland. It's a real place. So presumably you could visit the home of the gods if you hiked up high enough. Like to see you try. Did you know that a bunch of ancient cities had wells and sinkholes and places that they believed were the entrance to the underworld, a physical entrance. I did not know that. So if you went far enough the other way, amid the active geology of the Mediterranean and its many volcanoes, there are a few sulfurous openings in the earth and people believed these were the physical access to the underworld because like people and cows and shit or whatever would just fall in there and never come back. So they were like, well, that makes sense. There's really only one explanation for this. They fall into the underworld. So Italian archaeologists working at the Greco-Roman site in Hierapolis, which is in Turkey, have uncovered that city's gate to the underworld. <gasps> Pilgrims from around the classical world came to Hierapolis to bathe in the hot springs and worship at the Plutonian, which is a temple precinct built over this cave, an underground thermal area. So by tracing the path of the hot springs through the ancient site, this team at the University of Salento uncovered the entrance to a cave and engraved above it, an engraved dedication to Pluto above the entrance confirmed that this was a gate to the underworld. I guess that's why they thought like the water was warm too. And that there was probably like sulfuric steam rising. Mm-hmm. I mean, to stumble across it as an ancient mind who believes that the gods are physical and there's places that you can go to see like a stinky <laughs> sulfuric 
stinky little hole. Green smoke coming up from hot water underground. You'd be like, oh no. You'd be like, well, that's all I need to see, folks. I'm convinced. Right. <laughs> so the ancient Greek geographer Strabo recorded tales of his travels in Asia Minor in the final years of BC mentioned the singular properties of the Plutonian, saying it is an opening of sufficient size to admit a man, but there is a descent to a great depth. The space is filled with a cloudy, dark vapour so dense that the bottom can be scarcely discerned. Animals enter, die instantly. Even bulls, when brought within, fall down and are taken out dead. We have ourselves thrown in sparrows, which immediately fell down lifeless. So yeah, I mean, I'd be pretty convinced if I had an ancient brain. Yeah, it's like the people with the trumpets today. (laughs) Go on. You know that like there's this thing where people say that they can hear trumpets in the sky. So there's like conspiracy theories that it's like the apocalypse because the Bible references hearing like the four horsemen. Yeah. Uh, And it's like when you look up the, you can look up YouTube videos if you just look up like trumpet sounds sky or trumpets apocalypse. It is a really weird, upsetting sound. But then you go and look up any like cursory research and there's like several different like plausible reasons why it could happen but i also understand that like if we were like out in the middle of nowhere and then that sound happened i would lose my fucking shit yeah i bet that'd be terrible. it sounds so like alien listen to this bees <laughs> it does kind of sound like bees but the footage <laughs> is like just in like a neighborhood and it's like a deafening sound coming from from the, the sky. sky. I love all those memes of Renaissance angels, and then like what the like what they're actually supposed to look like, just like a bunch of eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> like, do not be afraid. Like a scare like, of eyeballs. Yeah. So yeah, if the uh, if some people had fallen into the sulfuric gate to hell in Turkey, the first thing they would have met was Cerberus. The dog with a job. Just doing his little job, sitting patiently, keeping people in, keeping people out. Do you out. think he has, a, like, one of those little vests? Pet me, I'm working. Oh, don't pet me, I'm working, and I will feast upon you with one of my umpteen yeah. heads. Don't those are really the only places that Cerberus appears in ancient texts, so despite having relatively few narratives that revolve around him, Cerberus has cast a long shadow in literature, mm-hmm. culture, and art. Paintings and statues of Cerberus that show mythological scenes never really went out of fashion from the ancient world to the modern. The guard dog of Hades also has a number of direct literary offspring. So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's famous Hound of the Baskervilles, um, Stephen King's Saint rabid St. Bernard Cujo. The image of a hell hound, in quotation marks, became a familiar one in popular literature and culture during, during the 20th century. Mm-hmm. But doubtless, Cerberus's best known contemporary analogue is Fluffy. Hagrid's three-headed dog in J.K. Rowling's first Harry Potter novel, which came out in 1997. Yeah, we were tots. Just a tot. Just a tot. And that's the story of Cerberus. Dog with a job. A dog with a job. Smellinor. Yeah. I'm going to give you three points for each of Cerberus's heads. Well, couldn't that be a hundred? It could be. And I knew you were going to say that. And that's why I was going to take one point away. Oh, no. But I'll add 10 points back because I love all the research and I loved how you connected it to the gates of hell, which is something that I did not know about. Which is Isn't really that cool? I cannot believe somebody hasn't written a shitty screenplay about that yet, where it's just like Ryan Gosling <laughs> in Turkey and he's like, the, don't look now, but I just found the gates of hell. Like a new Doom movie? Yeah, some bullshit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway... 
So that was, uh, uh, for the folks at home, that was plus three, minus one, plus ten. Twelve. She did it! All right, Spelinor. Yeah. War of the Words. Okay. So this is where this begins. I don't know about you, but I get really freaked out or I can freak myself out Hmm. when I think about what is the standard now that I can hold news up to, to where I know, or I believe that it's true. Oh yeah. It's terrifying. (laughs) Terrifying. Information has become polarized to the point where a story or like a standard set of facts can be wildly different depending on like which source you read them from. Right. And I used to think about, okay, well, how did people know what was true and what was not throughout all of history? And there did seem to be just sort of like a baseline level of like pre... Um, so it's just honor code? I think some of it was honor code. And I think, I mean, definitely, obviously, there were, there were bad actors who bent that to their will, which we will discuss. But I, I think the thing that I often get into is like pre-internet, pre-computer, If you saw something with your own two eyes, then you could reasonably believe that that was a real thing. And now we don't even have that anymore. We've talked about deep fakes before. Like I find deep fakes horrifying. There's this song that's like getting popular on TikTok right now. That's a a song from the Outer Worlds, the video game. Okay. And it's like a fun kind of like musical theater sounding song where a guy is singing about like the like he's the bad guy he's talking about capitalism and how like you now belong to the company okay he's like honestly did you not read the company policy uh well somebody took that song and they did a deep fake where they made jeff bezos mark zuckerberg steve jobs which i was like okay he's been dead for a long like he was (laughs) yes he was made too much money and it was gross let him rest with his fruit yeah he already killed himself like let him be dead and then elon musk and made deep fakes where they were singing this song and like made this basically like this like musical theater review thing and it was so creepy oh. and i was just like there was a time when if i showed that to someone they would be like oh i can't believe they did that because there's right. no they could not believe the idea that they were seeing something that wasn't real so was, i always feel like the scary part about deep fakes is that it's not so much that you're going to see something from a deep fake that isn't real that then becomes part of like national news. Cause I guess that's possible, but it doesn't, there still seem to be safeguards in place for that. Right. The fear to me is that the more that we know about deep fakes, now you just can't even trust your eyes when you see stuff. Nope. <laughs> Which is like very freaky. So I spent a lot of time thinking about this. And whenever I think about kind of newer innovations in the world, I immediately usually go to, well, is there something that is similar in the past that Ooh. we're not really considering? One example that I love is comics that come out that are about like teens on their phones. Uh-huh. All oh, these teens just on their phones, they'll never talk to each other again. Using and the then, technology. And then, yeah, and then you can find literally articles from like the turn of the century the turn of the 20th century of people saying the same things about newspapers where like an old timey black and white photo of all the men on the train holding a newspaper and they're like whatever happened to conversation now everybody's just reading their paper and what so, oh yeah no those are so fun like those I are need you to send those to me for social I will find them so when it comes to fake news I was looking for an example from the past that might kind of illuminate the way that we feel about 
the constant influx of upsetting and confusing information that we get today. Yeah. And then I remembered a little anecdote that I've heard referenced several times in my life, but didn't know that much about, which is the 1938 broadcast of the War of the Worlds. <gasps> oh, Do you know about this? I know a little bit about this. I know a little bit about this. So yeah, I too knew a little bit about this, a, a teensy teensy bit. And when I went to look it up, I found that it was fascinating, not just because people have differing opinions about it or just because it was, you know, a very strange moment in pop culture, but because it does say a lot about both how we ingested information at that time in the late 1930s yeah. and hopefully maybe something about the way that we ingest information now. Right. So when people talk about this story, these are like the kind of bare bones facts. There was a famous science fiction, he calls it a science romance, written by H.G. Wells. This part's also a little bit confusing. Written by H.G. Wells, who also wrote The Time Machine, called War of the Worlds, which is about a Martian invasion. Mm -hmm. And then in 1938, Orson Welles, no relations, spelled differently, mm -hmm. decided to do a radio drama. And in the 1930s, radio dramas were the shit. Like, this was prestige television. Oh, yeah. The 30s. I did a history of television <laughs> at my university because it was a joke. And, and <laughs> it was like a lot of the beginning was about how everything was teleplay and radio play. And that was like a lot of people at the time were like, it's never going to get more entertaining than this. Again, like, I think we feel that way now, you know, people right. talk about like, this is the golden age of television as if storytelling won't evolve. Right. As if we won't here. watch the Marvel movies in 20 years and be like, we used to think this looked real. Exactly. So the big story around this radio play that most people are kind of familiar with is this idea that some people thought it was real and they listened. And that is something that I think when I hear people talk about it in modern times, they say it with a little bit of pity or uh, derision, you know, like definitely like a sense of like self-satisfaction of like, can you imagine listening to something on the radio and thinking that aliens were taking over? What Ridiculous. was it like in the 30s? <laughs> There's a lot of context, it turns out, that's missing when you talk about this. So here's some of the context. And one, which is something that I think most people can kind of gather from common sense anyway, is that yes, there was no television, there was no internet, there was no 24-hour news cycle. It was difficult to get information quickly. So the only way that you really got information like that was the radio. Listening to the wireless. But the other part about that is that in 1938, this was still incredibly new. The radio? Not the radio, but radio news. That's what I was gonna say. This is the part that was incredibly new. Ah. The part that was incredibly new was radio broadcast news. And not only was it super new, it was also really only happening in America. So the first time, according to historians, that radio broadcast news broke in to tell a story was during the Munich crisis, which was also in 1938. And just as like a real quick what that is, the Munich crisis, also called the Munich betrayal, was when basically European powers allowed Hitler and Nazi Germany to take over Czechoslovakia. Radio was an emerging format, but even newer than the prevalence of radio in people's homes was the idea of broadcast news radio. Most people all over the world were still getting their news through the newspaper, which meant that you were at best a day behind, right? So again, to kind of contextualize what happened with the war of the world, you have to get into the mindset of somebody 
who knows, who takes for granted that any information that you're going to get is going to come at least a few days later. And I think that's really, really difficult for us, especially like people like our age or younger who grew up with the internet or mostly grew up with the internet. I don't really remember a time before the internet. That is pretty wild to think that like, that it would be new and exciting to listen to something and think, oh my goodness, this is happening right now. Yes, exactly. To be listening to like, oh, this was happening and someone's invading someone. You'd be like, like right now, that's insane. Right now on the other side of the world. That was incomprehensible. That's the thing is that when I try to put my mind, when I try to put myself in, in these people's shoes in 1938, I can't, I can't think of an analogous experience in my life. I'm trying to think of something where I actually had to wait for information. The closest thing that I can think is honestly, and this is even still a secondhand experience, was like your experience with immigration. That like, because that was so bureaucratic that you couldn't go online or you couldn't call anybody and find out. Yeah. You just had to sort of take for granted that you would sit and wait for an indeterminate amount of time to get this information. For a letter. For, for a letter. letter to arrive. For a letter. Yeah. And even that is like a poor comparison to living your entire life, just sort of not ever expecting to get information at, as it is happening. So breaking news is brand new. Breaking news was first kind of introduced to American audiences, like I said, during the Munich crisis in 1938, which is when the UK and other European powers said, oh my God, fine, you can have Czechoslovakia. Just please don't start a large scale war next year. And Hitler was like, but maybe. I might. I might. (laughs) And this breaking news, this breaking news format where you had people literally explaining what was happening on the other side of the world, again, inconceivable as it is happening. And then you had experts come in, weigh in and explain in real time what this would mean for the United States, for England, for all of our allies. Yeah. I mean, it was the biggest thing happening sort of like in American cultural life. It also meant, and again, this is about like trying to kind of contextualize and read these things as if you are experiencing them at that time. If this is the first time you're ever hearing this kind of breaking news, it's also a lot scarier. This is the first time that I think Americans got to experience what you and I experience and the rest of everybody experiences uh, every goddamn day where we wake up. Every moment of every day. Yeah, where you wake up and you open your phone and it's like, guess what? Kim Jong-un's in a coma and uh, Trump just learned like what a nuclear button is. And you're like, fuck. Like, (laughs) it has any context yet, right? Because before this, say something like the Munich crisis happens, the newsmakers in America are the first people to find out via, you know, like the telegram or whatever. And they synthesize this information. They put it into context. They write an article and they deliver that article to you. Now that we have breaking news, they're just giving you information in that moment. It's happening so fast that they don't yet have the context, which is something, again, that we all know what that means, right? Like you think about like, for example, like the breaking news bulletins from 9-11. Like when that was happening, they didn't know that like Osama bin Laden or Al-Qaeda or anybody was involved. They just knew that a plane had hit the building. So that's the only information you got is like, hey, we just found out a plane hit the building. And then over the day, we learned all these other bits of pieces of information that contextualized it into a story. So that is, that's an experience that I think still gives most of us a bit of like an adrenaline rush, but it's also, Mm -hmm. it's our de facto standard. 
the Munich crisis is literally the first time in these people's lives or in history that they got to experience this kind of fear and adrenaline. So Whoa. it contributed to, this is also, we should remember 1938, this is what we call like the interwar period. So 20 years out from World War One, and yeah. we're one year away from World War Two. So things have been, tensions have been really mounting. Yeah, People are afraid. People know that something is going on in Germany and that, that it's rapidly escalating. They get all mm-hmm. this information. Now we're at the point where some people are listening to Orson Welles' radio play, War of the Worlds. Right. Until this point, a radio play had always been performed like a play, which was a format mm-hmm. that everybody was really familiar with, right? So it's literally, it's like, it, it opens, you set the stage, these characters come out and they're like, mother! And it was, and done, it was live. done live, which is super cool. But, you know, they'll come out and they'll say, like, I don't want to play the piano. And they'll be like, but you must play the piano. It's very <laughs> clear that you're listening in on a narrative, right? Yeah. War of the Worlds was Orson Welles' very fun, cool idea, which sounds old-fashioned now in 2020, but in 1938 had never been done before. He made essentially, like, the first kind of found footage play because what he did was... They created a radio broadcast that was a review with like music and, and you know, bits of other plays. And then he broke in to this fictitious musical review with news bulletins. Again, a very new thing that had only yeah. this year ever been done about something very terrifying, which was Nazi Germany annexing Czechoslovakia. He broke yeah. in with fake news bulletins about this invasion. And I actually have the audio pulled up. This is the original 1938 broadcast. This is Merlin Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. So the idea is that you're listening to an orchestra. Uh-huh. The idea is that you're listening to an orchestra that's playing in New York and it's being broadcast over the radio. So this is just like a fun, normal thing that you would listen to on the radio. And it goes on for a little bit longer than you would imagine because people had longer attention spans back in the 30s than we do. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. That was how it was formatted. It wasn't just a radio play where Orson Welles was like, it's me, a scientist, and I see Mars. Like, it was was news reports that broke into an otherwise unrelated radio broadcast to tell this developing story, which is a pretty genius way to tell the War of the Worlds. Very cool. Um, Unprecedented at the time, but not only unprecedented, unprecedented because even the technology that they were mimicking was brand new. When people talk about this, the last thing they kind of fail to point out is that a lot of people heard this happening and they didn't necessarily think that it was an alien invasion. That part that I just played, obviously they said something about Mars, but if yeah. switched over from one radio show to this radio show in the middle and you heard just something about unknown entities in American cities wreaking havoc. You might not think that it's aliens, you might think it's the Germans. 
which was a very oh shit that people a lot of people had in 1930. There's this idea of mass panic. Some modern historians think it's overblown, like the idea of the panic. What is true is they definitely they completely clogged phone lines. Like phone lines were down. There were thousands of letters mailed to the Federal Communications Commission, which are now held by the University of Michigan. So you can read some of those letters. Oh my gosh. The other thing that happened is that this information started to spread word of mouth, which is another reason why people might have missed that it was a radio play or that it was about aliens, which might have been a big tip off. Mm -hmm. Only about 2% of the people who had called in or was a were able to reach somebody at the time said that they were actually listening to the radio play. Most of them said that they were listening to something else and they heard about this happening. So because oh. neighborly at that time, they were running from house to house being like, oh my God, something's going on. There's like, we're being invaded as a country. And then the last thing that people, some historians like to point out, which I think is really important, is that people heard this information either through the radio play or through their neighbors or their friends. And they did honestly what, exactly what you would want somebody to do in this situation, which is that they called the newspaper or they called their local police station or they called the government and they said, hey, is this true? What should I be doing right now? So it's not right. When we talk about this panic, it's not like people like immediately just got in their cars and started like shooting everybody or <laughs> like, you know, committing mass suicide or uh, committing any other kind of crime or draining their bank accounts. They literally were just like, wait, what? We're getting invaded? Uh, uh, let me go, let me go double check. <laughs> let me write a letter to ensure. Let me make absolutely sure. So poor Orson Welles got called into like the CBS headquarters to answer for this. And he thought that his career was ruined, which oh. wasn't. <laughs> He's considered one of the greatest uh, filmmakers of our of the early modern period. I'm sure since you went to television school, you had to study that old fucking sled just like I did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the legacy of this event definitely endured. And here's where things kind of take a hard right turn because you know who did like to talk a lot about the War of the Worlds controversy was Adolf Hitler. Oh. Because at this same time, Adolf Hitler is using primarily the radio as his means to build this fascist coalition and kind of take over Germany, which is a missing huh. that honestly I didn't know about until I was researching this. I had grown up hearing the general narrative of in the period of time between World War One and World War Two, Adolf Hitler and his regime were able to successfully convince Germans who were were, for a, a lot of different economic reasons, were a lot worse off after the war. That, oh, this is not your fault. It's not your fault that you're poor, and it's not your fault that you don't have a job. It's actually all these other different groups of people's fault. Hmm. And it's Europe at large who is empowering these people who are lesser human beings to come into your country and take your jobs and take your money and take your opportunities. Sound familiar? Using a new medium of communication yes, to convince exactly. a mass amount of people. Exactly, Ellie, because I had always wondered, well, how did he do that? Like in the 30s, like how did, did he literally go like city to city and tell people like, dude, you should hate Jews. Like right. then this was the missing piece. He used the radio. And as you very astutely pointed out, he used this new developing technology that people weren't sure how much they should believe or... And a lot of times, for especially for older people who were older in the 30s, 
they didn't necessarily understand how it worked. So having this box, this like mythical box in their house that had the Fuhrer screaming at them, doing his like hours long orations that he was famous for, raging against the system that they all felt had betrayed them and let them down over the last couple generations was incredibly powerful. And yeah, I do think it has, there are some analogs. I know at this point, probably there are some people who are very sick of people making all these comparisons uh, between what's going on right now and the lead up to World War II. But if you're sick of hearing it, I'm also sick of living it. Like, right. I wouldn't keep bringing it up if it didn't continue to be true. And I would just really prefer that it stop being true. There are now people who have cell phones who grew up for most of their lives not having a cell phone. I recently listened to my dad, who's 58 years old, explain his first experience with a smartphone with me. And it was like listening to somebody describe magic, which in this, in that moment, in that context with like my dad, who's like generally a nice person, that was a very sweet experience, right? Cause I was like, oh yeah, I guess I didn't think about it this way. But for the first like 35 at least years of my dad's life, like this was an inconceivable thing. And then he had a phone, but it was totally different. It was just a phone that he got to like bring different places, which was in itself a miracle. And yeah, at like, you know, 58, he gets his first iPhone and he's like, what the actual fuck? And how does this do the things? How does this do the things? And so I was like, oh, my dad is like millions of other people his age or like around his age, that this is kind of a newer, more fascinating idea. And then he has this box and if he wants to, he can open up a little bird on that box and he can get a never ending feed of an echo chamber of people saying, nothing that's going wrong in your life is your fault. It's actually these other people's fault and you should hate them because they hate you and their entire mission is to destroy your life and destroy everything that you enjoy about being a person. And this is a war that you're in already and you need to do everything that you can to destroy them before they destroy you. And I'm like, oh, that's fucking terrifying because I am fortunate that because of when I was born, I grew up with like a lot of contextualizing factors about the internet. So I'm not saying that I'm not susceptible to internet bias because I 100% am, or that I'm not susceptible to being duped by information because I think unfortunately we all are. But I think our generation and younger come to the internet with maybe a larger dose of like skepticism than maybe other generations do because for them it is still like a miraculous thing. The same way that the magic box in their house in the 30s that allowed the Fuhrer to talk directly to them. Before that, you might never in your life hear your leader speak to you. Right. Ever. That is so wild to think about. And the difference between then and now is in terms of perceived believability is that the idea that this man had even had access to something that was at the time such a limited availability to even be on the radio right like right. the fact that he's on the radio and that he's spending hours and hours and hours telling me about this thing must mean it's important and we've now translated that to the amount of likes and followers exactly if this man has this many followers it means that what he's saying must be true or at least dependable in some way or if they have a check mark next to their name or if it's, they have a blue fucking check mark. the blue fucking check mark then like they've been deemed important and so probably what they had to say i bet they probably fact checked that but you have no way of knowing right So I think it's interesting to, again, when you hear stories like the War of the Worlds and the panic that was caused to contextualize it into what it must have been like in that day and age to hear something like that. And then I think it does teach us things about how we synthesize information now. 
Very similar to if you see a sulfuric well, you might think it's a gateway to hell. Isn't it weird how much synchronicity there was between our topics? Yes. You have to put yourself in the mind, in the place of the people that you're considering. Otherwise, none of it makes sense. Oh my God, is empathy like the true message of today's episode? All about empathy and trying to understand each other's positions. (laughs) Beautiful. Beautiful. Chelsea, that was amazing. Thank you. I mean, you're always wonderful, but it was very much a return to the form of Chelsea combining amazing thoughts from past, present and future and amalgamating. And I freaking love the War of the World story. I think it's so cool. It's so fascinating. And I have such a soft spot for that transatlantic. You might hear the Enjoy the New York musical. Six points Yes. for reminding me of my university experience. Good. Three points for the transatlantic accent. Telegram. Minus two points for Hitler. That's fair. I will take I'll take that hit. <laughs> and then plus three points for the amazing reflection on how we're living in we it seems to be we're always living in similar times. Everything that's happened has happened before. Which is scary, but also in a way kind of comforting, maybe. I don't it know. It can be. I will say, um, yeah, the episode of the podcast that I work on for work that's coming out today as we're recording this the guest on the show who's amazing her name is professor martha s jones she's a professor at johns hopkins and she talks about black suffragettes and the struggle for black people to actually get voting equality in this country yeah she told the story i'm gonna go so fast about chris rock who was on one of those shows that's like the know your roots type shows where they do genealogy uh-huh. chris rock told her about how his father was a janitor and he always assumed that he would be a janitor too because that's what he knew until comedy gave him this like other path and then when they yeah. did his ge- when they did his genealogy they found out that his uh, like great great grandfather was actually like a civil rights leader in the 19th century and he was oh. like a really powerful leader but those are the kinds of stories that got lost primarily for black families because of a spooky thing called racism and so <laughs> chris rock just talked about how he wondered what kind of person he would have been if he had grown up knowing that story about his great great grandfather oh, wow and knowing that he had had that kind of leader which i think goes into what you were saying which is that the comforting thing about constantly reliving these cycles in history is that if we choose to, we can learn the lessons of history. We can draw strength from those things instead of yeah. ignoring them and then continuing to make the same mistakes. But it means you have to do your freaking homework and I don't know, go learn something once in a while about what happened before. Damn. Chelsea, where can people find you? People can find me at Chelsea Harfouche on Twitter, Instagram, basically wherever internets are sold. And you can find me at Ellie Maney on Instagram and at Ellie Maney on Twitter. And you can find this podcast at WhatPod on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, Patreon. And our website is thosetwogirls.club where we have our merch and a fun way to contact us if you so choose. Thank you guys so much for listening. We love you. Keep it loose. Keep it tight. Play your prayers tonight.